WNYC Studios is supported by Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. This is all of it on WNYC. I'm Allison Stewart. Let's continue our series, The Big Picture, which focuses on Oscar-nominated creatives who work behind the scenes. Our next guest music helped transport us to the steampunk world of poor things. His score is at times energetic, sometimes mischievous, sometimes appropriately dissonant. It's none of it gratuitous or too on the nose, just sort of magical. Composer Jerskin Fendricks is a musician who never had worked in film before director Yorgos Lanthimos recruited him for this project. The score he created befits the universe seen through the eyes of Bella Baxter, a woman for whom everything is new and wonderful and confounding. Here's an example of one of the tracks from the score to show you a bit of what I mean for when Bella's experiencing new things. This is I Hope She's All Right. Fendrix is nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Score for his work on Poor Things, and he joins me now. Hi, nice to meet you. Hi, how's it going? It's, it's going well. How about you? Yeah, yeah, doing well, thank you. Yeah, doing you're, well. Yeah, you're nominated for Academy Award. It's going well. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. It's okay. What were you doing right before you accept this position? What were you working on? Um... I was doing a few projects in London. Um, I just released an album called Vintorizer, which was basically pop songs, although maybe a slightly generous use of that definition. And I'd done a, a bunch of work kind of more in the kind of live you know, pop music, the general scene in London that revolved around this uh, a venue called The Wind on Brixton. And generally I was working in the songwriting sort of arena when Yorgos got in touch and I believe he'd listened to that album, which I released in lockdown. Before this project, were you someone who paid attention to the score in films? Yeah, sometimes. Um, there, I mean, there are definitely people like, you know, Mika Levi and Johnny Greenwood and so on, who I think, you know, in the contemporary scene were doing wonderful things. I also, you know, really loved a lot of the music for like, uh, like 90s Disney films, like, you know, Mulan, The Lion King and Hunchback of Notre Dame and so on, like, were, you know, really, really 
big influences on my music generally. So I, I did watch films like, you know, I, I suppose most living people. <laughs> did you ever think about being a film composer? Um, perhaps abstractly, but it wasn't anything that I had, you know, particularly, uh, yeah, I wasn't aiming for it in any sort of professional way. When you got the call from Yorgos Lanthimos and his team about acquiring about your interest, what were your thought, first thoughts? Um, I think even now it's kind of hard to work out exactly what I was thinking. Um, I th one, there was a few days of being sent materials and, you know, chatting on various calls and so on until I kind of fully realized the extent of what I was being asked. And then at that point, I think it was about six months of panic and making sure that I, you know, had actually came up with something that was good. So, you know. There, there, there wasn't much of a of a ramp, to be honest. I think I was I was very suddenly dropped into actually just doing it. Was there anything from your experience as you as you described it, pop songs? But um, they're 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 big pop songs. Um, anything from that experience that was useful to you in this experience? Oh sure. I mean, yeah. like very early on, one of the first conversations I had with Yorgos was about how we didn't really want to think about other films or any other film scores. Mm -hmm. Like when I was writing. The, the bulk of the music for Poor Things, I didn't watch any films. I tried very hard not to like think about any other film scores and we never discussed any other music in general. So all I had is, it was kind of like an autophagic process. I basically only really had what um, I already knew about music and writing music to rely on. And I think it was such a wonderful film to start with considering my background. So much of about Bella's story is to do with, you know, these really exaggerated emotions, feeling these, you know, primal things for the first time in so many different arenas, and, you know, the exaggeration, the uh, uh, melodrama. I don't know that that's not entirely fair because I think so much of it feels true. And from my experience in, like, you know, writing pop songs, so much of it is, you know, it's really dumb and it's really, you know, kind of naive and, and exaggerated. And I think it's why it's such a, like, a popular art form. People really turn to it because it's one of the few art forms, I think, where you can really be completely like embarrassingly over abashed with emotion and it, and it kind of it never feels you know too much you can really yeah push the superlatives there so i think there was a lot of that sense of yeah very very concentrated very powerful emotional writing that i could apply to poor things my guest is Jerson Fendricks. The name of the film is poor things he's oscar nominated as the composer for best original score what did Yorgos tell you he needed from a score? Um, that's a good question. The way he directs and all of his collaborators will say a similar thing. He doesn't he doesn't backseat drive in any capacity. He he actually gives a really radical amount of trust to all of his collaborators. And it seems, you know, at first it can be slightly daunting and there's so much responsibility placed on your shoulders for your own interpretation and your own mm -hmm. understanding of the materials. But so much was communicated just through the script, through the uh, concept designs that I've given. I think you get a sense that he almost, almost non-verbally transmits that basically, like you can go as far as you want. There's no, there's no point where you're going to be overdoing it. And I think all, all of us working on the film got the sense that actually this is a place where you don't have to hold anything back. And that's actually not a common thing to have as an artist. So realizing you have an entire gamut to play with is an extremely liberating thing. I think it's why so many of the contributions, not just mine, but everyone else's is so, you know, 
seem so vibrant and extreme. What material did you have available to you when you started writing? So as well as the script, which is wonderful by um, Tony McNamara, which I think so much the emotion and the humor and um, yeah, the sense of feeling, I, I was really moved by that. Um, there was also this 200 page document that um, Shona and James, who are the production designers, had um, come up with before I started to work, which had, you know, all of the art, oh, all the set designs, what the, you know, what what the sky might look like, whatever, all the buildings and lots of very, you know, a lot more abstract and weird stuff that actually end, than what ended up in the film. And that was, you know, that, that gave me such a solid sense of cosmetically how, you know, astounding this film was going to be. And yeah, I just basically started running from those two things. And I think I wrote about 95% of the score before the cameras started rolling. I want to play a bit of Bella's theme. So Bella is childlike at first, baby-like, um, and she eventually matures, but she still always has this childlike curiosity about about the world. That's something that, that someone can't take away from her. How did you play with this idea of curiosity and child-likeness in the Bella theme? Oh, it's a good question. I think um, I've always really liked the idea of having some very straightforward kind of like diatonic, simple, sweet melodies and pieces of music and then thinking about the way in which they're played kind of informs the meaning rather than just the content. I think Glenn Gould's recordings of um, Mozart sonatas might have been somewhere in my you know head during that, which I think the way he does those are incredible. He kind of plays them as if he's trying to make fun of them almost, mm -hmm. but that kind of, that that dialogue gives such power. So I think I was wanted to write, you know, some really quite simple, quite moving pieces of music and then what happens if like the players kind of miss it slightly? What happens if the, if the tuning kind of is like, you know, almost reaching this thing? And you're right, I think Bella never really loses the child like, you know, aspect. And one of the great, you know, parts of writing the score is that she never becomes normal. She kind of goes from being this bizarre child to like being this extremely bizarre, hyper intelligent being that there's no point where she kind of settles into just what everyone else does. So it could always the score, even though when it became more complex and more multifaceted could still have that, you know, naivety and curiosity. Let's listen to Bella from Poor Things. what is the instrumentation on that that's a great question um i'm going to not answer it directly but uh one of the things that we were playing with a lot is um 
we we basically recorded every single instrument kind of separately and we had separate um recordings and files for every single you know musician who plays on the score so we never had like an ensemble in the room or anything and what that allowed us to do was um a great deal of processing basically so like a lot of the sounds and instruments you're hearing are often like something very close to what you think it is but actually something either something similar that's been kind of a little bit bent into shape or something which is actually completely the opposite end of the spectrum pitch wise or instrument wise and mm -hmm. it's been like fully uh surgically altered to go you know to go into a very different sphere and i think and there was a lot of i want i really wanted to play a lot with um you feeling like something was kind of familiar and you know warm and approachable but actually like part of your lizard brain is telling you there's something kind of quite deeply off about it it's it's it does it plays with what our anticipation of what it's supposed to sound like sure. a little bit um and there's a lot of silence you really you, you you use silence how do you use silence in your writing yeah I've always been really interested in how space works in music. I think there's, you know, I I think it's an underthought about aspect, at least of Western music and Western pop music. Um, one thing we did as well, I worked really closely with Johnny Byrne, who's the sound designer, who is, you know, fin fantastically talented, talented uh, designer. We were looking at the final mix together and actually what happened often, there was a dialogue between the score and the sound. So in some some parts, I think, for example, Lisbon, we had, you know, a lot of the, the general sensations of the street kind of drowning out the score and kind of it coming in and out a bit mm -hmm. with how overwhelmed she is. And then there are other parts, especially towards the end of the film, where Johnny, you know, in, he said in a, in a more conventional situation, he would have kind of put a, a standard amount of atmosphere in, but he actually took out all of the sound design, so it's just the score. So the uh, the mix of that and the, the space is really apparent, and I think it it makes it even more striking and kind of, you know, you start to like hear your own breath and your own heartbeat in the spaces where it becomes, you know, far more mortally terrifying towards the end. We had Johnny on the show three or four days ago for the zone of interest. Oh, great. And I asked him, you know, how did he take care of himself after working on such an intense film? And he said, oh, I went to do poor things and that was terribly fun. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was sort of a funny answer, but it, I got a sense that it really uh, helped him that it was a, a very collaborative and a very um, uh, a warm set or a warm group of people? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, both, you know, The Zone of Interest is just such a phenomenal work of cinema. I think like every single person who works and worked in both, like I think 50% of our conversations about film while we were doing the press for it were just about The Zone of Interest. And I think it truly speaks to Johnny's abilities as a sound designer that he can go between two, you know, thematically such contrasting films mm -hmm. and also just in terms of atmosphere and, well, you know, anyone who's seen both knows really what a different ask yeah. both of those jobs are, and he pulled off both perfectly. My guest is Jerskin, Fend Jerskin excuse me, Fendrix. He is nominated for an Oscar for Poor Things for Best Original Score. So Bella travels the world, Paris, Alexandria, London. Uh, there are the different themes in, in your work. Um, did you... I, was it too on the nose to listen to the music about that place, or did you just take it from the script? Um, I think that 
what we didn't want to do is have you know Bella arrive in Alexandria or Paris or Lisbon and and for the um at least for the actual score the non-diegetic score to you know feel like it was you know somehow connected to the traditional music of that place mm-hmm. you, you kind of wander into stereotype and pastiche very easily in that mm-hmm. regard I think so much of the way Tony um formed the script made it almost a bit like a morality play I don't think that you know the locations are more stand-ins for a specific experience or specific lessons that Bella learns and I think mm. really easily see you know someone or something teaching her something and her personality being quite specifically molded as a result so the, I think the music for each place like yeah Lisbon um it's kind of a lot of wonder and discovery Alexandria has this you know first real shock of you know horror and death and I think the music in Paris um, kind of gives more of a sense of, you know, was when she kind of gains a lot more of a purpose and a drive. And I think mm. by the end of that, you can re- she really has a sense of what she wants to do with her newfound ability. So I was really framing it more in that sort of way, still again from Bella's psychological interior. Let's listen to that track, Paris. <laughs> you wanted to focus on wind instruments sure yeah i think um yeah this was very early on in the process and i was kind of you know so much of the mise en place in terms of what textures were being used in relation to the materials i've been given was really important and i was you know looking at a bunch of medical documents and i thought that the idea of breath and the idea of you know the manipulation of life is such a big part of this film, the manipulation of life from a medical point of view, but also from, I guess, more of a sociological sort of thing. And so working out different ways we can manipulate breath. So some of that involved like really heavily processing with instruments. Some involved, you know, singing and, you know, putting human voices through various processes to, you know, to, to alter their identities. And also ideas about wind instruments that, um, are operated by humans that have a human breath and then mm. wind instruments that are operated by machines like pipe organs and accordions and bagpipes and so on where you almost you, you've kind of animated them that, that they have a mechanical breath it's a non-human breath and then what happens when you try and process them to sound more human like often the result of that experiment came up with some like you know some really eerie sort of sounds which is really interesting i think we hear a little bit of that in, in bella and max let's take a listen sure
You're listening to the work of Jerskin Fendricks. He is Oscar-nominated composer for Poor Things for Best Original Score. This is part of our Big Picture series, talking to creatives who work behind the camera. The scene, the Portuguese dance scene. The Portuguese dance scene is is great fun. Uh, it's a pivotal role in this scene. Bella and Duncan, um, they're in Lisbon. Uh, the music just takes her into this frenzy. <laughs> um, let's listen to it, and we can talk about it on the other side. Understand, we never lived outside God's house. What? So Bella's so much to discover, and your sad face makes me discover angry feelings for you. Right. Become the very thing I hate, grasping succubus of a lover. Tried many of them off me, now I'm it. One of the most entertaining, exciting scenes. She's just like all id on the dance floor. It's just the music's making her move and how she, she you know, sort of pelvic forward. <laughs> a time shouldn't be in uh, in that time. Um, was the dancing composed? I mean, was the choreography specifically towards the music? How did that work? Because you said you recorded most of the stuff beforehand. I mean, created most of the stuff. Yeah, beforehand. I mean, this this worked differently. I was, you know, later in the process. I was asked to, you know, write the music for these dance scenes in the film. And so, you know, it was a big collaborative thing. We worked with this phenomenal choreographer called Costanza McCrass, who had also worked on The Favourite beforehand. And, you know, I was, you know, basically given this brief for the scene and then, you know, got to Hungary where Poor Things was being filmed, got together a bunch of Hungarian musicians from the various, like, music schools there in Budapest. And we just rehearsed, you know, the thing for a couple of days and then like the whole actual scene, um, it was kind of put together more like a theatrical thing, like all the music's being played live during the shooting, like, you know, Emma Stone and Mark Ruffalo are dancing to us, you know, actually, you know, playing as part of it. And there's also the stunts, there's the dialogue and there, there's, it's such a complicated thing to film and Yorgos is you know he's so committed to authenticity he doesn't like things being stitched together in post he really wants mm-hmm. to capture what's actually happening so it took us a few days to just rehearse the entire gamut of that um dance and those fights and everything that's going on there and um it was a huge amount of fun it was also extremely stressful but <laughs> yeah it was great so the, the musicians we see in the film are Hungarian musicians or is that just not yeah we got yeah I mean we, we, we you know I was just you know told to write a thing and then I like get some people together we rehearse together for like a day or so then we rehearse with the choreographer I was you know I sent a draft of the music to the choreographer in advance and there, there was there was a lot of kind of slowly building up everything for the dancing extras as well as mm-hmm. um Stone and Mark Ruffalo and just putting everything together was such you know by the time the whole thing was kind of flowing it was it was extremely exciting it felt like you know, such a real performance you know, we spoke with Shauna Heath, and she had never worked on a film either. I mean, she's got a, a very, um, obviously, big presence in art and design. Um, what is something, and you, like you said, you haven't 
uh, been a composer on a film before. What is something you think helped you not knowing <laughs> about yeah. film composing? Sure. I think, well, it, it sounds like too much coincidence to really, you know, be be that um, lightly. But the fact that it's, you know, it is a story about someone experiencing things for the first time. It is a story about seeing the world through this lens of, you know, through this total alien new perception of everything. It was really important for Yorgos that so much, many of the aspects of the film hadn't really been seen before. I think, you know, the way in which Shona approaches design, if, you know, anyone who's, who's ever worked with her, and James Price will agree with mm -hmm. me, like yeah. if you hear her talking about her processes, yeah. you know, what's going on in there? I have no idea how that brain was <laughs> developed either. And I think for me as well, like I didn't really, you know, I was doing yeah. a lot of things which, you know, I probably wasn't supposed to do. <laughs> and, um, getting it wrong quite a lot. And sometimes, you know, I learned from the mistakes and sometimes we left the mistakes in there. Um, but I think all of these, you know, yeah. aspects, the way Yorgos has curated mm -hmm. us, really, you know, as a group, com you know, really help communicate yeah. the way and through Bella sees the world and everything about the film from the craft yeah. point of view reflects Bella a lot. Cheers, Fendrix. Thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Lovely chatting.